Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. So excited to be here. It's good to see some faces I haven't seen in a while. It's good to see Daniel after, for, after two months. You know? Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> you know, it, it's good to see Denny after two weeks. It felt like a lot longer, but, you know, he's back and, you know, God has, has brought them back safely. So praise God. That's exciting. And I'm always thankful to see the rest of you as well. Um, we have a whole baseball team, apparently. Is that here this morning? Awesome. So great. Um, so, yeah, this week, um, uh, one of the things I did was I drove my daughter, Alex, to um, an interview, a job interview. And yes, she already has a job, but she needs like 10. Um, that's, that's, that's who she is. Um, didn't, didn't get that from me. Um, so, um, and so we were sitting outside, and, and she was nervous, you know, because it's an interview. It's, it's kind of nerve-wracking. And um, quite frankly, she doesn't know how amazing she is. And so, you know, she doesn't see herself like I see her. So I know she's going to be fine. Um, and so we talked about in the car different interview questions that would come up because um, as prepared as you are, there's interviews, there's oddball questions out there, and there's just no good way to answer them. Um, <clears throat> but one question that we could almost count on, and I guess maybe not in this economy because you could just get hired if you show up, you know, but typically uh, you hear the question, um, tell me your greatest weakness or tell me one of your weaknesses, Right. And so, um, you know, like many of us, um, in the past, I've done the good old, um, well, my, my weakness is actually a strength, right? And so, um, so I, yes, yeah, sir, ma'am, uh, my weakness is that I work too hard, right? I, I just, I give too much effort. That, that is my weakness. I push myself too hard. And this is not a good answer. <laughs> it just, you know, it sounds good, but, but it's not a good answer, um, for many reasons, but especially because it is a huge weakness. You know, we only see one side. Of what, I know what we think we sound like, but um, as somebody who's done many interviews, just many interviews of, of my time being a manager, it's not a good question. A good recruiter and a good manager knows, like, this is a problem. If they're serious and, and they say they're working too much, this is a problem. Because the more that you work, Without resting, the longer you push yourself, um, you start making worse decisions. The quality, quality of your work will go down, even though you're working more hours. Oh, your heart for your work is affected. You know, It's like, what am I doing? I'm giving my whole life to this job. Um, and really, when we do this, it's also a misplaced identity in our work. right? We, and so we define ourselves by this work that we're doing. So it, it's not a good thing that we say that we work too hard. But of course, God, knowing that, that we were going to do this and we were going to make idols of ourselves and we were just going to work our butts off immediately, right? So the first, the first Sabbath that happens, God is already on it. Like, this is, this is not the way this is going to play out. First Sabbath, guys, we're going to rest, right? We, we are going um, to rest so that we can be healthy. Um, and so here's the deal, though. Like any gift, like even Jesus, think about Jesus, the greatest gift, like the greatest gift, gifts can be rejected. 
Um, also, to be fair, though, sometimes gifts aren't just, um, they're not appreciated at first. Maybe, maybe, honestly, you're not rejecting it, but you don't understand the gift. And I won't give examples, but this has happened to me in the past where I get a Christmas gift. I don't realize how awesome it is till June. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a great gift. I should totally call that person and thank them. This was great. And it's not a weird conversation at all. Um, <laughs> So this morning, we're going to talk about this idea of Sabbath um, and, and being a gift and also healing, because I think they tie in together very well. And so the title of our sermon today is called Healer and Haters. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for Sabbath, for rest. Um, this morning, may we appreciate um, this gift and, and also figure out what it looks like, because it looks a lot different um, than it did in Genesis for us. And so may our hearts and minds um, be opened to um, your Spirit communicating to us to what, what rest can look like in our lives, Lord, and um, so that we can be healed and what healing looks like in our lives, Lord. As so we just lift this service up to you, may you just um, enjoy it, and may we make much of Jesus, Lord. Amen. So... John chapter 4. We're still in John chapter 4, and we're going to start at verse 43. We'll read 43 through 45. After the two days he departed for Galilee, this is Jesus, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, um, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so one thing we see here, and I don't know if I mentioned it before, but one of the things I love about the Gospel of John is that it contains dates and locations. And so John, he's not saying, hey, this might have happened. I heard this happened about this time. It may have been in this place. And he's like, no, it's two days later. This is where Jesus was. So we actually know where God was on earth at a specific time. It's not a fairy tale. It's very historical. You know, God moving within his own creation and time. And the Galileans are excited. Who wouldn't be? They were there for the feast we talked about in chapter 2, where they had the best wine, right? Probably the best wine anybody's ever tasted. And you have to assume that all these people following him now, he's coming back into town. They want some of that wine. I don't know if they had heard about it, that it was somehow Jesus, or if Jesus had done other, other signs to them. But they, they, are, they are here to follow these signs of Jesus. And so... They're here to see what he's going to do. And so, starting in verse 46, we see what Jesus does. Um, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So we have this official, and the word there translated is basilikos, which can mean um, nobleman or kingsman, I think is a better translation than just official. Like, this guy is a serious dude. I mean, he walks into the room, people are going to turn around, um, be on their best behavior. This guy has some serious authority. <clears throat> but what's he doing here? Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And so here's the reality. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much authority you have, no matter how great you dress, what great cars you have, uh, if, if you have a child who's sick, especially at the point of death, there's nothing that you can do about it. There's not a worse feeling. If you're a parent, you know there can't possibly be a worse feeling than knowing that one of your children is dying. And so it must have been difficult for this guy. I mean, certainly he has the power to take some time off to spend with his son. Um, you know, this is a time where you want to be there. 
Right? You're not going to leave your dying child. You want to be by their side. And so it's obvious that this official believes this is the best chance. If there's any chance at all that his son is going to be healed, that it's going to be here. And so after he says this, um, Jesus speaks to him and to the crowd. And we don't really see it in the English, but the use of the language here is plural. So Jesus' response isn't just to this guy. It's to everybody who's there listening to this. And he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And this does seem a little harsh, and in a way it kind of is. And Jesus is telling the truth. Like, this is Jesus' heart about what's going on here. Jesus wants them to believe him and believe in him and believe his words that he's saying, not his signs, right? He's like, if I do signs, I know you guys are going to get excited. You'll probably follow me some more, but you're not following me. Why don't you just believe what I'm telling you for, for what it is? And so the official replies in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. And so desperation here. He's not disagreeing with Jesus at all about the signs, um, but he's begging, like, Jesus, yes, yeah, I need you. I need you to come down and heal my son before he dies. And so we have Jesus' response in verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And so this is interesting. Jesus rejects his request, right? The request was to go down to his son and to heal his son, which is probably about four hours away, you know, we believe. But he rejects that. And so in Jesus' rejection, and think about this, you know, when Jesus rejects our prayers that we pray, in this rejection, they actually both get what they want. And so on the one hand, this, this official, this king's man, his son is healed. He experiences this miracle. The most troubling part of his life is taken care of, right? His son is healed. That's amen. That's awesome. And then Jesus gets what he wants. Jesus has someone believe him at his words, right? Because that was Jesus's whole issue that he was talking about. And so it says Jesus told the official his son was healed and the official believed him at his word, even though he didn't come down because this official had faith. And we see this faith in verses 51 through 53, as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour on which he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Now, what's interesting about this exchange that we could kind of miss, I think, is that this conversation takes place well over a day later, like way over a day later, probably getting closer to two days at this point. And so again, normally if your child is dying, you are by their side, you are holding their hand, you are praying with them, you want to cherish every moment, give every last, every last word, every ounce of love and comfort to a, a dying child. And so we know from his conversation with Jesus that his plan was to immediately book it and go back to the child. And yet here, you know, it, it, it's, so, it, it's, it's subtle and nuanced, but this conversation takes place over a day later, which means after Jesus told him his son was healed, he rested. Like all the panic was gone, all the emergency was gone, all the I have to get back now, we have to get back is gone. And it doesn't say what he does. It doesn't say whether he hung out with friends or maybe he just had official business to do. But all of a sudden, like he's in no rush and just just having a conversation over, 
over 24 hours later about when the son was healed. And I think there's a lot of faith in that that's shown that this guy, it completely changed the way he lived. Like he believed Jesus' words and just began living in light of the faith that he had that Jesus would heal his son. What's awesome as well is that this official, um, not only does he believe, but his family believes. And this is huge. You know, I, I won't get too far into this here, but I mean, there, there's statistics that show, um, especially, you know, fathers, you know, if you can get a father to come to the faith, the odds of the family following the father are huge, astronomical, you know, and, and nothing bad about women who are leading their families in the faith, because statistics have also shown that it's women who are leading their families in the faith. So praise God. Thank you. That's awesome. But we also need to be reaching out to men because man, a man, a man could take hold of that household and really bring that family to the faith. And so what we have here with this healing of the son was a sign. It's a sign. And we read this in verse 54. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. And so healings like this are not normal, right? If they, if they, if they happened all the time, they wouldn't be signs. They wouldn't be miracles, right? And so the reason that John mentions this is to make you believe that Jesus is God. Remember a couple times we've seen already, and we'll see again where, where John is like, he's, John is not pretending to not be biased. I'm giving you this information because I want you to follow Jesus. Look at all the, the God type things, God mode that Jesus operates in. This, this is God and you need him. And so during the Bible, we see miracles happen. But if you notice when miracles happen, it happens around specific people. And so in the Old Testament, you had the stories of the prophets, right? Where just did miraculous things, miraculous events around the prophets. And then Jesus has these signs. Um, and then even the disciples show all these incredible signs, right? And so it's for a reason. It's because God is, is showing people, like, I approve their message, right? If somebody, I mean, any of us could say, hey, hey I'm speaking on the behalf of God. Hey, God told me, you know, give me your car or, you know, lend me 20 bucks or you know, whatever it might be. Any of us can say that. But the difference with the prophets, you know, with Jesus and even the disciples in the early church is that they had these incredible signs that backed up everything they said. There was nothing that they said that was so incredible that it wasn't manifest actually in their ministry. But the thing is, Jesus isn't done healing yet. And so we're going to go into chapter 5. And so in verses 1 through 3, it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So again, we have a location. And a fun fact is that nobody believed this was a true story until relatively recently, and this has been found and documented. Like, we know exactly where this place is now. Um, so... But really the key point here I think we need to look at real quick is in verse 4. So find verse 4 in your Bibles. Hmm. Right? So I'm guessing most of you uh, do not have verse 4. Right? No, you don't have it. Risa, do you have it? I figured you would. So there's a couple 
couple of Bibles, and I know, I know what most of Bible translations you guys use, um, will not have verse 4. And so, yes, I just trolled you. But, um, <laughs> and so it's interesting because, you know, I, I, I probably knew this at some point, but in my studies, as I was doing my notes for this, and I'm laying out the verses, I'm like, something is not matching up here. So why isn't there a verse 4? Well, that's because over the course of time, we have found more and more copies you know, of the Gospel of John. We found older and older copies, like a ton of copies of John. I mean, it might be one of the oldest of the Gospels. And so there's many copies of it, which means at some point, verse 4 was added to the text. And I don't disagree. Like, this isn't like, I don't know if I would have taken it out completely, but I think it's important because at this time, there was no study Bibles. And so we have study Bibles, which are awesome, and it has a note that says, hey, um, notice this, you know, this is where it took place, or this is what this measurement means. And so we have th these, these tools to help us in our study Bibles, and I truly believe that's what this was, verse 4. I think somebody at some point, you know, a scribe was reading this and, and wanted to make a helpful note. And so they made a note that said, hey, this is what's happening, because... Um, in verse 7, you have a sick man who mentions that at some point um, there's a pool that gets stirred up, right? But if you don't have context, and it's like, what is this guy talking about? Like, what does that mean that the pool was stirred up? And so we would have no frame of reference. And so I truly believe that there was just a very helpful scribe that really wanted us to have context for what's happening. It, just, it was before study Bibles, and it got kind of lumped into there. <clears throat> but this is, the, this is the context. So in the New King James, um, verse 4 says, For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after stirring the, of the water was made well of whatever, whatever disease that he has. And so this is cool because this makes sense. As we reach uh, verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And so we know that this guy's been sitting here for 38 years because he wants to be healed. And so there's plenty of debate. Um, was this pool a place where people got healed? And so there's, there's documentation of Christians, Christian leaders who say that for some reason there was an angel who showed up at this pool and people got healed by it. Um, to back up the people who would believe that, there's also different religions, not Christian, who say something happens in this water, and when it moves, if you get in it, people are healed. You know, and so we don't know. We don't know. It, it's possible, and the way it's written here suggests, not that it was a theory, but says, hey, when an angel came, that's what happened. And so the counter to that would be, well, it was a natural hot spring, which we know, and so hot springs have bubbles that come up. And so maybe that's what made the water bubble. Um, also, hot springs have healing qualities. And so, I mean, that's where people go to get better but from that water. And so we don't know. You know, I like to be fair with you guys if there's a question that we just don't know. But I don't know. I hope you think that's interesting. I love stuff like that. Um, but what we do know is we are at this position where, um, regardless of whether this pool heals or not, like the healer is here right? The guy who created pools, created water, created humanity, the guy who can heal is here. And so that is the important thing. And he knows that this guy's been here a long time. And so in verse 6, it says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? What kind of question is that? 
He's been there 38 years. Do you want to be healed? And so this, this is a great question. I think this is truly the great question. Of course, it was Jesus. He knows the perfect question to ask. But isn't this the question that the gospel asks of us? Do you want to be healed? It's a question that aims for our heart. It aims for our motivation. Like, why? Why would we come to the gospel? Why do we want to be healed? And so, you know, I thought I'd talk about reasons why people don't want to be healed. You know, because there is people who would answer this question, well, actually, no. I, I don't want to be healed. So four reasons that someone would reject healing. The first is to lose a good living. This guy's been here 38 years. He's obviously alive. You know, he's alive and kicking, and he's right by a temple, and so he's probably taken care of. And we don't know what kind of lifestyle he has, but he's, he's been able to exist up until this point fine. You know, this reminds me of many people who I know that getting disability checks is like winning the lottery, you know, or, or hitting some sort of jackpot. Um, again, being a, a former manager, I've had plenty of people reject employment in order to receive um, disability checks. And so that there, in some way, you can make a better living. And, I, and I'm all for disability checks. In fact, most of the time I see the opposite, unfortunately, where people do need it and it takes years to get it. So that, that's not my commentary on that. I believe it's a good thing to help those in society who certainly can't help themselves. But would somebody give that up? The second is that the situation is preferable. And so when Jesus asks us if we want to be healed and he presents the gospel to us, it comes along with the fact that Jesus is also asking us to change. He's asking us to change our life right now. Uh, repent, be more like Christ. And while the forgiveness of sin sounds awesome, eternity sounds awesome, you'll find there's a reason this is a narrow road because people don't want to change where they are at right now. They like the situation they are in. You know, and we found this in John 3.19 where it says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so these are people, the majority of people who reject healing. And so in, when the gospel was presented to them, do you want to be healed? The answer was no. And so again, this is a great question. I've talked to many addicts and depressed people who don't want to change their behavior or life. You know, so they reject spiritual and eternal healing. Third, misery is identity. And I, I say I've seen this so often. This guy's been by the pool 38 years. There's people who have grown up in the society and have seen this guy every day by the pool. Like, that's part of his identity. That's the guy who's always, you know, by the pool. And so people find their identity in this. And um, also people will gain sympathy. And so it, it's a really unique situation where people can get sympathy Right, get a lot of sympathy from people while also keeping people at bay. And so for some people, that works perfectly. There's a benefit, and, and you don't have to have people bugging you. And lastly, there's more responsibility. Here's what's going to happen if this guy is healed. The next morning, he has to wake up, you know, make up his bed that he picked up, find a job, go to work every day the, the rest of his life. He's going to have to find new friends, um, find places to get food, place to cook it, place to sleep, find a new temple. And so all this responsibility comes along with being removed from this situation that he's used to. All that to say, this question is great. It aims for the heart, asking, do you want to be healed? 
And so the man responds in verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going another steps down before me, but now we kind of know what he's talking about. It doesn't sound weird. Um, and maybe he's making an excuse or maybe this is true. But the one thing that he admits that is true is that he can't heal himself. Like that much we know. He can't heal himself and it sounds like he can't even help himself, which is fine because Jesus is here. That's his specialty. And verses 8 and 9, it says, Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. The man is healed. No physical therapy, no crutch. This guy is healed, right? Strong enough to carry a bed. I don't like carrying beds around, right? I'd moved a couple months ago. Not one of my favorite things, moving those beds. And this guy, he's doing it. And I can't help but see the gospel here, right? And so Jesus comes to this guy, and we're going to find out really soon. This guy is kind of sketchy, a little shady, um, has a bad attitude. And so um, he's not deserving. He's not holy or worthwhile. But Jesus approaches him with this offer of healing, just like we are, when we are offered the gospel, we are offered healing, right? So if you believe in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we're offered healing, right? Spiritual healing. Our relationship with God is healed. It's so awesome. And we have this hope of a healthy body for eternity. Our minds begin to heal. Our hearts begin to heal. And just all, all this healing takes place if, if we would just follow Jesus. But like this man, I think this story also shows three critical steps when we accept gospel healing. And I just, just as a summary, I want to look at these three steps. Um, the first being, ask yourself if you want to be healed. I think that's a great question to ask ourselves. Do we want to be healed? And then, and then like this gentleman, confess that we can't heal ourselves, right? Because that's part of the gospel. Yes, we need to be healed. Oh no, there's no possible way I can heal myself. You know, we can't help ourselves. And then third, have faith and listen to Jesus, right? I mean, that's the three steps to accepting the gospel. We need healing. We can't heal ourselves. We need faith in Jesus to heal us. And so he tells this guy, get up, get your bed, and get out of here. As when we come to the faith, Jesus says, like, follow me, right? Take up your cross. Stop doing all that nonsense that made you sick and miserable. You didn't even like it anyway. Stop doing it. And Jesus gives us responsibility, you know, to make disciples and to build a kingdom. So God gives us that responsibility as well. And so, oh no. So we're going to continue in chapter 5. And this is where we cue like the villainous music. Whatever villainous music is in your head, cue it up. We're going to transition to these Jews who are now going to talk to this healed man. And we see this in verses 9 through 13. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. What are you doing? But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man who said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Well, who is this man who said that to you, to take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. And so what's the problem? Well, A, there is no problem. Like, a miracle happened. This guy could walk. That's great. There's no problem. But, but to these Jews, there's a huge problem. They're offended that this guy is doing work on the Sabbath, which you were not supposed to do. But, of course, this was not the work that was meant by the Sabbath to, to not do. 
right? And so it's a twisting and perverting of what the Sabbath is. It's, it's, I don't know, it's like kind of goofy, horrible. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous. And so in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, here's the establishing of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, and that's key, and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in the six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, all that is in them. But then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And so what we have is one of the Ten Commandments, right? Like This is serious. This is one of the Ten Commandments here. And the idea is, you know, it's meant to be a blessing. And as it says here, it's talking about labor. You were not meant to do work on the Sabbath, like, like job work, like labor work. You know, the Sabbath wasn't meant that you didn't do anything, right? Like how not restful is it for all of us to just stand still staring at each other? That's not restful, like just staring at each other, right? Nobody do anything. It might be defined as work, you know? So let's just take a whole day and just... And just have a horrible day. And, and that is not the spirit of the Sabbath. It's meant to rest from your work. Um, a, good a good Sabbath is a time to sleep extra, right? Sleep more, laugh, you know, spend time with your family, go get some ice cream. But the Jews, man, they, these are not like ice cream eating guys, right? These, no, because if you scooped ice cream, that'd be work, you know? I, and it's just ridiculous. They care more about rules than people. I mean, these Jews right here, they should have been like going bonkers. Like, I can't believe this guy got healed. How did this guy get healed? How incredible is that? You know, after almost four decades, this guy is moving like a normal person. And they can't see it. And they can't see it because their eyes are like bright red. This isn't in the Greek. But I mean, they are triggered right? They are triggered. So they have bright red beaming eyes. They are so upset, they can't see this beautiful miracle that's happening. And so after this, Jesus finds this man again, and this is where we can kind of see where, you know, this guy, he's not, he's not the best guy, but it says afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. You are well. Sin no more, that nothing, nothing worse may happen to you. Man, is this verse loaded, this verse has been used to abuse people up even through today. And so uh, you will have people who will tell you, if you are sick, it is because of a sin in your life. I mean, I've been miserable for the past couple of weeks. I must be doing a lot of sinning, right, to get gout and to throw my back out. Oh, you know, pray for me because I, I apparently, according to a lot of people, it's because I have sin in my life. In fact, when it comes to faith healers, this, this is what they use. And so if you go to a faith healer, don't ever go to a faith healer. That, that would be lesson number one. If you're not healed, what they tell you is it's your own faith, right? Or, oh, there's a sin in your life that you haven't confessed yet. And so they get all this money, send everybody home, nobody's healed, and now they're all isolated thinking, everybody got healed by me, except me. And it's because I don't have faith or I have some sin in my life. And so it is absolutely horrendous. That is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying it's possible there's a link between sin and sickness. 
And in this case, we're told there is a connection, even though we're not told what the connection is. But I think this is something that we understand very well. And so, I mean, just for instance, let's say you know, before you're married, you have multiple partners, right? Just, you know, you're, you're getting around Bakersfield, you have multiple partners, and you get a disease. And so, yes, sin, disease, directly linked. And there's so many more examples that you could see of, of sin in your life that d d directly affects you and can cause harm and sickness and disease. So there was something here we don't know about. But there's a connection that Jesus sees in this man where he's like, dude, don't do it again. Like you've had 38 years to think about what you did that got you here. Don't do it again. And so we know there's something going on with this guy, even though we don't know what it is. Um, then we learn more about this guy in verse 15. Look what he does. The man went away and told the Jews that, of Jesus, that it was Jesus who healed him. You guys want to harass somebody? This is the guy who healed me. I'm going to sell him out, throw him under the bus, right off the bat. Just. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And we will see that throughout the rest of this gospel that this is one of the things they're going to bring up over and over. Because Jesus heals this guy, this is what sets everybody off, and they will keep bringing this up because they don't understand what's happening. But Jesus finds these guys. I, I don't, I don't, we don't know if, if they found him, but Jesus talks to them in verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, God doesn't take a day off. Praise God. Like, how horrible would that be if God took a day off? So, but in Genesis, it says that God took a day off. And so we can infer that that's not what that meant. And so when it says God stopped working, which is what it said as we went through, God took a day off from doing work, from creating. It says he took a break from creating. That was the job that he was doing. And so, you know, what does God want to do besides work? Why does God create a Sabbath? What does God do on the Sabbath? Hangs out with Adam. Think about that. Like God stopped working to hang out with people. Right? The first Sabbath, you know, we have these conversations of God just talking to Adam about the lay of the land, things to do, things not to do. God loves hanging out with Adam, loves Adam so much, he's like, you know what? I'm going to make you, you know, a partner. You know, you guys are going to have the best time, but God's heart for people is that we would have a day off, that we would have community, right? And so it just blessed me a lot to think about that, that the very first Sabbath, God was like, I want to spend time with you guys. Hey, let's stop working and just hang out. That's fantastic. It's such a blessing. Now, the point here that Jesus is making is not that, that God the Father is working so that we can all work on the Sabbath. But as the Jews correctly interpreted, when Jesus says this, he's saying that I can work because I'm God, right? So God is working till this day, which means I can work. And so they picked up on it. This guy just said he was God. Guess who's triggered? Well, verse 18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so they are absolutely triggered. And that will lead into what we will study next week. So we'll stop there in the text today. But I did want to take some time um, to talk about Sabbath, right? To talk about what, there's this whole argument going on, but it's like, okay, 
well, everybody's getting this wrong, and Jesus is saying, you know, trying to explain what the Sabbath is. So, so what is the Sabbath? And believe it or not, this is the topic that I get the most pushback on. As I counsel people, as I uh, disciple people, um, I will usually ask base, basic faith questions. How's your marriage? Um, do, you, do you give? Do you serve? Do you have devotional time? Um, that, which all will affect our health, you know, our relationship with our God, right? Our religion is our relationship. But I will ask the question, when is your Sabbath? Or what is your Sabbath? And man, do I get pushed back. Um, people say, oh, well, you know, I'm busy. I work. I work several jobs. You know, I, I go to school. I have kids. You know, we have all this stuff going on. I don't have time to just do nothing. Now, I often have people tell me as well, the Sabbath is not a New Testament commandment, right? The New Testament doesn't command that, that we obey the Sabbath anymore. And, and so the argument would be, well, the Sabbath was created to point us to Jesus, Right? In Jesus, we find our rest. Jesus is the ultimate Sabbath. And don't get me wrong, I love that answer. That's a fantastic answer. Um, you know, it says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, who, all who labor and are heavy um, laden, and I will give you rest. In Mark two twenty eight, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And so I believe that Jesus gives us rest, absolutely gives us rest. Even in our most, our most exhausting and chaotic moments, we could find rest in Jesus. Yet I don't believe this commandment, like one of the Ten Commandments, is abandoned in Christ. I don't read that anywhere, where all of a sudden it doesn't exist because we have rest in Christ. You know, in fact, I think it's even more meaningful in Christ. Now, originally, the Sabbath was Saturday. It was Saturday, which a lot of, even like Christian churches, will still follow, you know, that it's Saturday. And in the New Testament, we see Sunday become the holy day, like, so we meet on Sundays, but then Sunday is never mentioned as being a day of rest. And so there's like this gray area. It's like, well, is that the day of rest or is our now day of rest and the holy day? How does that work? And I think the easiest way to find an answer is in Romans 14.5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And so I think that, that in the New Testament, what we find is not that the Sabbath is gone, but that what like the Jews turned it into, like a hard Sabbath, like just an abusive Sabbath is gone. But I still think the principle is still functional. We still need to take a Sabbath. And, and here's the deal. I mean, if it's Sunday now, then you know who breaks the Sabbath every week? The pastor. <laughs> so... You know, um, so at, at some, yeah, if it, if it was hard like this, it'd be like, oh man, like meeting for church is the breaking of the Sabbath. But that's not the case. In fact, you know, because I have a lot of friends who are in ministry, just the nature of my position. Um, I find a lot of people will take a Sabbath from like noon on Friday, especially noon Friday till noon Saturday. So splitting days, right? Taking 24 hours, splitting the days, and then coming back Saturday night to practice their sermon, to pray over the congregation and get ready for Sunday. And I think that's something that we can all do as well. You know, we all have different schedules. I mean, we, we are not all farmers on the same schedule or bankers. We all have different jobs. And so the Sabbath is going to look different for all of us. That's something, you know, I, I'm more than willing to talk with you about. A lot of flexibility, but we need that rest. I still believe the Sabbath is a gift. 
still believe the Sabbath is a gift for us. And I, although I think Jesus, I know Jesus is our rest, it doesn't make sense to me for Jesus to say, enter into my rest or take on, you know, my burden, my burden is light. And then for Jesus to turn around and say, enter into my rest, but also now you guys can't rest, right? Enter my, my, my yoke is light, well, which is good because now I'm going to make you guys work every day of the year. And so there, you see, it doesn't, it doesn't work out. Just common sense, reasonable, theologically, it just does not make sense. But, you know, in Christ, because Christ is our rest, I think this gift of the Sabbath is better because now it's like during the week, even in our work, we could find rest in Jesus. Even while our physical bodies, you know, if we have a labor job or whatever we're doing, mentally even for some of us, we still have that rest in our soul in Jesus. So we have a Sabbath kind of all week long, but I don't think that takes away from actually having a set-apart Sabbath. And so I want to end today by looking at three reasons why we still should have a Sabbath or observe a Sabbath. The first is that it shows our faith in Jesus. Remember like the official in, you know, in chapter 4, as soon as he has that faith in Jesus, he slows down. It's like, okay, good. God's in control. Jesus has got this. I can now do, run my life a certain way. I could take over a day. And maybe that was a day of Sabbath, but I could take day. I, I can slow down now because of my faith that, that God has this situation under control. And I believe when we observe a Sabbath, we are showing our trust and faith in our God. Right? We are trusting God that, hey, you know what? You know, we, we operate like if we can work all seven days that we are going to take care of our lives. Everything will make sense if we never stop. And yet by taking a Sabbath, you know, it's worship. It's faith in God saying like, look, I know you got this. I can take a day off and my world is not going to completely fall apart. You know, that's why I believe things like, like surfing, um, like skating, you know, every Saturday. I think those are forms of worship. I think that's showing trust in God. I can go ride my skateboard for a while and my world's not going to fall apart. You know, I have faith in my God and, and I know my God gave this as a gift. And if you've ever given somebody a gift, like when do you, when do you as the person who give the gift, like find joy? It's like when the person finds joy in it, right? If you give a gift and they're happy about it and they're using it and they're excited about it in the same way with us. Like God wants to see us use our Sabbath, not, not abuse it like it's being done here. Secondly, we allow space for healing. And so when we stop, you know, we, we've already talked about healing, you know, in the sermon today, but also like very practically speaking about our physical health. You know, even like, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger took days off from training. You know, athletes take days off from training. Everybody has to take days off and let your body rest, let your mind rest. So physically, emotionally, even socially. You know, if you have a job where you work from home, like every day of the week, you need a day where you can get out of your house or invite people over so you can have, you know, social health. And so the Sabbath, it creates like this healing time for us that I'm telling you that we all need Spend time with your spouse, family, walking, even watching TV, you know, getting ice cream, which it's what you need. It's a gift from God. God wants to see you enjoy it. And my kids think we're getting ice cream now. Um, <laughs> and so it is a gift from God. You know, I even like, like, I like football, you know, not, not, not as much as David, but I, I like watching football. And so I like football season because you know, on Sundays, it, it forces me to have a time where I stop. 
And so I go home and I crash, nap, I get up and there's games on. It kind of forces me to, to, to be engaged with the TV, to meditate with the TV, which means that I stop doing everything else, which is a good thing. You know, it's not that football is the great thing, but the fact that I can stop thinking about everything else in my life and just be in the living room with my family and hang out is absolutely awesome. And this is the truth as well. Our teens need a Sabbath, right? Our, our world is moving too fast. I mean, I can't even keep up with all the documentation about like, you know, like dopamine, right? <laughs> it's just, it's so fast paced. Attention spans are shrinking, right? The ability to read is going away. The ability to think out things and meditate and rest is going away. And so, you know, parents, I'm telling you in front of your teens, it's okay for you guys to be the bad guy. It's okay for you to say, you know what? No screens on, on, on for this time, for you know, whether it's during dinner or for a full night or day, but just to, to teach them because they're going to have family someday. Like they're going to, you don't want them to completely burn out by the time they're 20. And so they're going to have families. And so we have to model that to them. What does it look like to rest? What does it look like to trust God? And so I encourage you to do that. And teens, it's because I love you that I say that. So you guys need a Sabbath. And lastly, um, we could spend time with Jesus, right? Just like the first Sabbath. Like, it's, it's a perfect time. I don't I, I think I'm one of the few exceptions where my job requires me to spend time with Jesus. I think for most of us, it, it is not what we, what the, the terms, you know, reality that we're thinking in. And so by taking a Sabbath, you know, you could, beyond your normal devotions, you could spend time with Jesus, with others who love Jesus, singing songs, you know, sing songs, read some, some theology books, you know, again, I've talked to so many of you who, who tell me you're not readers. You're missing out. You're missing out. And so what a great time to, to read some great theological books or philosophical books, get to know Jesus better. And so, again, not working, but working on your relationship with Jesus, which is your most important relationship. And so the point of this Bible story is like in John chapter 5 is not that we shouldn't observe the Sabbath but it's that we shouldn't turn a gift into a burden. I believe that's what the point is. And so as we leave, I want us to consider a couple of questions. And the first is, do you believe that Jesus is your rest? Do you believe that Jesus is your rest? And secondly, do you believe it enough to rest? I don't know what that looks like in all of your lives, but I, but I hope this morning that this, the Holy Spirit has convicted you and convinced you that you need to slow down and rest because God wants you to rest. He wants you to see, see you enjoy that time. And certainly he wants you to spend some of that time with your family and especially him. So let me pray for us. We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.